you can turn in your Bible, um, open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. As we move to be back to normal, just trying to think through the process of what does that mean for us, and as we get into public life more and more and more, um, how do we walk in that life as believers? Obviously, we have lots of things going on in our nation, our city, our, our county, and how do we be that light uh, set on a hill? How do we be the light in the midst of the world? How do we walk in public again, coming out of that shelter-in-place mode to being back at, um, you know, some of us were, were never gone, but we're, we're definitely more public now um, this week than last week in, in the past 10 weeks. So how do we do that? And then I want us to think about that, and I think Ephesians 4 is a great place to, to go. Um, how many of you have, um, um, you've been driving and somebody in front of you, you know, you're, is, is, they're not driving as aggressively maybe as you are. You've already figured that out. And then you see the light, the traffic light, just as they are getting to the line, you see the traffic light turn yellow. And you think plenty of time for, for this person to get through and per, plenty of time for you to get through before it turns red. But that person stops on a dime. How many of that has happened and it bothered you, right? You know, basically all of us at some point maybe that's happening to us. Well, this is a true story about us all. There was this lady who was driving, having that situation. The car in front of her stops on a dime. She hits the steering wheel. She's frustrated, hits the roof, blows the horn, you know, just yelling. And as all of that's happening, a little tap on her window. You know, the policeman was behind her and said, ma'am, would you mind just kind of pulling off the side of the road. I, I need to investigate some things before um, we need to move forward. So she pulls off and, um, you know, and she, he comes up after a long time of investigation on the computer and says, ma'am, I'm sorry to detain you. You're free to go. And she said, what did I do that led you to all of this investigation? He said, well, it wasn't just what you did. It's what you did along with the signage on the rear of your car. You've got these bumper stickers, and, you know, as I pulled up, I could hear you cursing the guy in front of you. I saw you flip him off, and I look at your bumper sticker, and it says, what would Jesus do? And then the next bumper sticker says, follow me to Sunday school, and you got that little Christian fish thing going on. And I just immediately assumed you must have stolen the car. After some investigation, it's clearly it's your car. You're free to go. With, let me give you a verbal warning. You need to act more consistent with your bumper stickers. And that's the message to all of us. We all know that we're not just to talk the talk. We must walk the walk. Even God knows our behavior needs to be consistent with our profession of faith in Christ. So how do we do that? How do we walk as lights in this world? How do we walk consistently as believers when so much 
unbelieving activity is going on. This is a great time for, as I said, revival uh, and ministry. But it needs to be us walking in public again as that example that the world needs to see. Let me read to you Ephesians 4, the first six verses. Therefore, God's Word says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the, the key word here is walk. Uh, I implore you to walk in a worthy manner. Uh, it's, it's not only here, it's other places. Look at down at verse uh, uh, 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles, meaning the non-Christians, also walk in the futility of their mind. You need to walk distinctively. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, 8 and 15. Verse 2 says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. So walk as children of light. And then verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Uh, so you see an emphasis on behaving in a consistent manner with this new life that is ours in Christ. Um, the first word of this passage is therefore. Some of your translations may have then. But it's a transitional word uh, that's saying what's gone before, therefore, now this is the behavior. A lot of people break up the book of Ephesians into the first three chapters being doctrine, what we're to believe, and the last three chapters being what we're to, how we're to behave, what we're to do. Because of this one word, therefore. We've got these two big sections in this book. What you're to believe, what you're to do. There's overlap, uh, but clearly there's a difference. If you look in chapter 2, uh, you, you see the overlap part I'm talking about. In chapter 2 it says, we walk. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, we walk according to the power of the air that's in this world. We walk according to the ways of this world. But verse 10 of chapter 2, but now we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we don't walk that way anymore. There's a new walk. So when chapter 4 comes along, it's, it's, it's screaming, preaching this message. Walk in a manner that's consistent with all the things you believe in Christ. Well, it even um, gets more specific than that. But let, let's, let's look at this walk. We're coming out of a pandemic, Lord willing. Well, maybe we're going to be in it a long time. I don't know. But how do we walk? We're coming into this world now that's had a week of violence and protest. How do we walk into that arena as 
believers. There's this idea of a walk we talked about last week being unified. The, the same emphasis is here. Look at verse 3 of, of chapter 4 again. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So as believers, there, there needs to be this unity among us. And our walk needs to be consistent. When somebody says, well, why are they doing that? Why are they behaving that way? Well, they're Christian. That's the way Christians walk. That's the way Christians behave. I want us to have that kind of ministry for our God. Well, let's think about the walk that's described here. Again, verse uh, 1, it's clearly a duty for us to walk. Therefore, since something has happened, you must walk. It's, it's, it's a responsibility that he's asking us here. Um, it's interesting to me that it, it just over and over kind of comes back that only genuine Christians seem to get this. That this walk that we're having occurs after salvation, not before salvation. We don't walk to get saved. Since you have been saved, therefore now you behave. We belong before we behave. We belong to Christ. There are lots of people who think they need to walk a certain way to get saved. Chapter 2 taught we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead people. We weren't walking. Walking according to the course of this world. We weren't walking in a manner that's consistent with a believer's lifestyle at all. If we are Christians, we walk now differently because of what Christ has done in our lives. We don't just clean up our lives. We could have done that as a non-Christian. We do something distinctively different as believers. And I want us to think about this whole context that way. What is this distinctive about the Christian's walk that clearly points us out as different? Uh, it says here, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, not a lot is is here on what that calling is. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 18, you see it mentioned there. Let's read that. It gives us a little more context. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We sing a song to that. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Comes right out of this text. <clears throat> so he's saying, I, I pray that, that you see this, that you understand this, what is it? That your, your heart is open to this so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Now, he, he unpacks that a little bit with the next phrase. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, it take us a while to unpack all of that, but to, to think through, there's something about being called of God that brings us into a new hope. And that new hope includes an inheritance, something that is Christ in the saints. And as you think about all of that, you know, what has Christ called us to? He's called us, the scripture says, out of darkness to light. He's called us out of sin into uh, a relationship with him, into holiness. He's called us out of the world into the family of God. So you start thinking about that transfer 
that chapters 1, 2, and 3 kind of begin to unpack for us in this unity of, of Gentile and Jew put together in Christ. And all of that, he says, we are heirs. And we are already seated in heavenly places. We have a privileged seating in heaven. So that's our hope. And, and think about the glory of his riches, which we are going to inherit. He says, when you think about all of these things, it should change the way you walk. You've been called to the riches of the glories of Christ. How does that change you? You've been called to be an heir. doesn't matter what happens on earth. You will inherit heaven in all of its glory. So how will you behave? How will it change you because of your calling God called you to be a family member. How do family members behave? So we, we behave differently than non-family members. We carry the name in the family. The name of Christ now is ours to carry. That's what he's trying to get. There, there's this point-in-time transfer that happens to every believer. Yeah, we're saved before the foundation of the world, but we're born into this world as sinners. And as sinners, we must be transferred from this dead, spiritual, sinful state to be made alive together with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. And when we're made alive together with Christ, the dead man becomes alive like that, a point in time. Some of you remember that point in time. Some of you say, I can't remember the time at all. But I know it's occurred. Why? Because the behavior is different. Because there's a fruit of, of, of that change has occurred. Well, that's what he's talking about. What, two things are given to us when we're saved. Two gifts the world doesn't have. We have the gift of repentance. And we have the gift of faith. Repentance is that power to say no to sin. And yes to Jesus. Faith is that power to believe. Jesus is, is not just a Savior. He's Lord of my life. And as you believe that, new, as the Spirit comes into us, it changes our behavior. Now I have ability to say no to sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that less and less. And I have the ability to, to read what my Lord wants me to do and say, and I hunger and thirst for Him and His direction more and more because I trust it. I have that faith, that gift that's mine now. That came with my calling. When He called me to Himself, that's what He gives me first. He regenerates my being and gives me faith and repentance. And that changes, automatically changes my behavior. So you say, okay, great. I get that. Why then, question, why then are there so many people who are non-Christians who do so many good things? They, they act pretty much like Christians at times. I thought you said the behavior follows the belonging, and yet I know people, I, I know they don't worship God. I don't hunger and thirst for His righteousness. They don't repent. They don't believe. And yet they seem to be some pretty good examples out there. Why is that happening? Well, the answer for that is simple. The reason is because there's so many false gods in our world that require good works to please them. 
There are lots of people following their idols, their gods, and they're doing good works, trying to get themselves saved when we were called to salvation by grace. Because we create these idols, we will a lot of times do good things, and these idols are man-created. I won't take the time this morning that, that all the idols we have, a, a good place to go would be Micah chapter 5. Uh, he talks about we, we create these idols. God comes in and destroys these idols. But all idols are a creation of our own hands. Think about the idols that we've seen in the last few weeks, last few months. How about this stay-at-home idol, this social distancing idol, that many people, you've seen them worship this idol. And you hear it in the media like this. We have saved thousands and thousands of lives. Really? How did you do that? You know, well, we social distance. We isolated ourselves. And we, and we were, some people have literally worshipped that. Instead of saying, which we all know is much more accurate, that we have potentially reduced the risk of potentially catching an infection of a virus by social distance. Not saying social distancing is wrong, but you have seen people worship it. You've seen people make it their God that this is the only way they can be saved and others can be saved. You've seen people worship scientific data We've seen it all our lives, not just, but we certainly have seen it now. People who are glued to the next fact that's coming. And you've got to follow those facts or they will die. And they're convinced they're saving themselves. And so they do all manner of good things to follow that idol and to worship that idol. There's other idols we've, we've seen along the way, uh, politics. How many people are convinced they will save this nation by joining a political group, by doing certain things from a, a political viewpoint? How many think people are convinced they have saved themselves through the idol of financial savvy? When markets crash, it's a great time for the financial savvy to make a killing. And many are convinced they have done so. And they have saved, literally saved their lives and will save other people's lives through following those idols. We create so many idols. There's so many idols among us. Are you saved by following them or are you saved by Christ? When we come out of the pandemic, people will ask us, well, what did you do? Your kids, grandkids... 40 years from down the road may ask, what did you do when you finally were able to come out of your homes and go back into public? Well, first of all, I want you to know we, we, we are alive today. We saved ourselves by our social distancing. We saved ourselves by following the data. We saved ourselves by getting into the market when it was down. We saved ourselves. Is that the message? Or is the message, what did you do when you came out of the pandemic? I threw up my hands. I worshiped God who saves me from all my distress. God is my Lord. He is my Savior. 
He is my deliverer. In him do I trust. He is my refuge. He is my strength. I am alive today because of his grace. I have an inheritance because of his grace. I'm in his family by his grace. I am here by the grace of God. You see, a totally different message is the world hearing the message of Christ that we are called to walk that message, to breathe that message, to live that message in the world. Christ does not save us by our works. The Christian message is that we worship a God who works for us. We worship Him because He died for us. He saves us. That's the message that's consistent with our calling. And I think the pandemic has made that abundantly clear. Those who are walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Those who are completely dependent on God and those who are dependent on other things. Now, I want to make a, a statement or two about verse 1. I'm still on Ephesians 4, verse 1. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy. So that means there is this concept of walking worthy. So I can say, are you walking worthy? And you shouldn't say, oh, no, no, nobody can do that. No, no, no. This is in the context of, no, you can do this. This is something you can do. And I find so many Christians, when I say, you know, good job, that was, that was good. No, 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 there's nobody good. There's no, not one. Wait, you're switching the context. There is such a thing as a worthy walk. And it's good to be able to acknowledge it and to do it. To walk in a worthy manner. See, I implore you to do that. That's consistent with our calling. Let me show it to you a few other places so you don't think this is just strange. Look at Philippians 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27. It says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I mean, there's a sense in which Paul is saying, when I show up, I want to hear, uh, are you walking worthy of the gospel? And you say, yeah, I'm walking worthy of the gospel. That should not be a strange statement. How are you walking? Worthy of the gospel. Look at um, Colossians 1, verse 10. Colossians 1. Verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Wow, are you doing that? You should be saying, yeah, that's what I'm doing. So that, that's what I'm praying for, that's, that you're walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. How are you walking? Worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. That should be a testimony we can give. Another place, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. So that you would walk, you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. How are you walking? Worthy of God. Worthy of God. 
consistent with his calling me into his kingdom. I'm a kingdom subject, heir to his glory. One other place, Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. I think that's it. Revelation 3, verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That was a statement God's making about Christians in Sardis before death. They're going to walk with me because on earth they walk the walk, they are worthy. So, if you're one of those people that's always putting that down, don't tell me I'm worthy, I know I'm not worthy. I'm telling you, no, you are worthy. You need to be worthy. You need to walk in a worthy manner. And though we're unworthy of Christ, yes, because we're dead in our sins, when He transforms us, we walk in a worthy manner. How do we do that? We want to do that. We want that to be our testimonies. Too many of us miss worthiness from some false idea that that's impossible. And look, we do this with our children. Why should it be any different with God? If, if your child, I was invited to a piano recital online, live yesterday. I mean, you see your kid at a piano recital. By the way, don't invite me to piano recitals. I don't, yeah, not, not putting you down, those of you who invited me, but if, if, if they are just out of the world fabulous, great, okay? But I've been to a lot of piano recitals, and I don't know how to play the piano. I, a lot of times I think, I could do that, you know. It's, they're just, well, you know what they are. All right, but when it's your kid, it makes all the difference in the world. When it's your kid, your smiles, you're beaming. When they do the piano recital, when they uh, do the dance recital, when they score the goal, when they catch the fish, whatever it is, when, when it happens and it's your kid, what do you do? You say, you the man, that's good. I am so proud of you. You get excited. Great job. You are walking worthy now. You're doing it. What do you have to do to applaud your kid? You discount everything they've done bad. For this moment, you want to encourage them. They are walking worthy. They are pleasing you. Our God, when we do what He wants us to do, when we walk in a worthy manner, He takes all of our sins and He throws them at Christ and He says, good job. You are walking worthy now. Worthy of the gospel. Our sins are credited to Christ. Christ's righteousness is credited to us. And God says, good job. You're using the righteousness given to you. You're using the knowledge of God given to you. You're using the faith given to you. You're using the repentance given to you. And you're walking worthy. Walk in a manner by the gospel. He wants that. And that can be our testimony. How are you walking? Walking worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the God who's called me. Worthy of the inheritance I'm about to receive. I'm walking worthy.
That's the goal. I encourage you to get there. That's what I implore you to get there. That's the kind of way we should walk. And then the world will see there's something different about you. There's a worthiness. And they will see because we have a different God than the rest of the world. And we walk consistent with a gospel where sinners are saved. The good news is that sinners are saved by grace. Far greater for us to walk worthy than just to be I mean, now that we are forgiven, we're not just always seeking forgiveness because we're unworthy, but we're walking because we've been given all the gifts we need to be worthy of the gospel. Well, have you been walking worthy in this pandemic? Man, this pandemic is a, is, it's, it's, it's a time, as, as we had a prayer time here in this service, to lament. It's, it's, a, it's a time to grieve. It's a time to repent. It's a time to, to pray for a worthy walk in the gospel that's consistent with the way we have been called. You know, Paul throws out this. I'll just finish verse 1 with this. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Why did he use that phrase describing himself? I, I'm not real sure. But he describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord. This is one thing I assume, I don't know, I haven't been a prisoner, but I assume prisoners know something about walking wrong, those who have been rightly arrested and convicted. They know something about walking wrong, and then they learn something in prison about what it means to walk under authority and to walk right. And maybe that's why he used this phrase, but he says, I implore you, as a prisoner, one who understands what it means to be under the lordship of Christ, I implore you to walk in a manner of, that's worthy of your calling, that's worthy of the gospel that way. And I implore you to see Christ as your authority, your Lord, and walk in a manner that pleases him. We want to hear him say, well done. Good job. You the man. We want that from our God. That means we are walking worthy of the gospel. Now, he gives us three ingredients. Say, so, okay, you, you, you got me. I, I know I need this, this worthy gospel walk. Give, give me something. He gives us three ingredients. So, with verse 2, walk in this manner. Verse 2, with, and mentions three things, humility, gentleness or gentle with this with patience gentle patience three showing tolerance for one another in love well, let's think about these three ingredients these are the things he's put forth for us uh, that involves our worthy walk the first one is humility i listened to uh uh carrie underwood i, I, I do i do different songs I don't think I've ever shared this one with you, but I do different songs a lot of times on Sunday morning just to prepare me. Lord, I want to be in a, in a right spirit before I minister to others and come into your house. And this morning I listened to Carrie Underwood sing, How Great Thou Art. And there's a rendition of that. You can find it online. Where just everybody's in standing ovation. Unbelievable how great God is. And in that song, 
it talks about when I see God, I will bow in humble adoration. And when I heard that phrase this morning, I thought, right response, right response. If we really get how glorious God is and all He does for us, we have the characteristic of humility. If you're going to walk worthy of the gospel, it begins, first ingredient is humility. How many of us during this pandemic have found ourselves with just unbelievable confidence that our view is right? And I've been there. Like, you're ignorant. You just don't understand. I know. I read a, a wonderful article. I probably should have saved it and shared it. Uh, probably could Google it too. It was, says, what we do and do not know about the coronavirus. And I just, this was just a week ago, and I thought, and the first point had like seven points. First point is, we still don't know how it spreads. And I'm thinking, what? I know. You know, I have confidence. I know. It's person to person. It's the droplets. You know, I know. And you read the article, it says, that's what we think. But, you know, at first we thought it was on grocery bags, and we quit with that. It, you know, it, we're still exploring the data, and we won't know all. And if it's, if, it's, if it's just that way, why is it there are some people in total isolation in senior living facilities who still catch it? Why is that the only way? And I stop reading this article, and I say, whoa, I need a little humility. I don't know it all. And a lot of times, we come at life as though we are the expert. And we know it all. God says, I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And that manner involves, first of all, humility. Humility is the understanding that we do not know it all. We're in this world that believes in empirical knowledge. Empirical knowledge, when you study philosophy in college, they teach you all these things. To know something empirically, you have to investigate everything there is to know about it. And if you haven't investigated every single thing there is to know about it, that one fact out there you've missed can change all the other facts. So in other words, to know something absolutely, you have to know something exhaustively. And none of us know anything exhaustively but God alone. God is the only one who has exhaustive knowledge of anything. Just knowing that should create within us a measure of humility. We need to walk in a manner worthy humility. So how do we get that? I want to share with you. Um, might take us a little longer. But turn to Job 30, 38. Every year, you know, I read through the Bible cover to cover. But when I come to Job 38, many times I'll read it two or three times. Job 38, 39, 40. And the reason is because it's a section of Scripture that's packed with the fullness and the sovereignty and so much of the glory of God. And if I ever had time to just sit down and memorize Scripture, this is going to be at the top of my list. Job 38, 39, the first part of 40. Because it's so glorious in talking to us 
about God. And so I'm giving it to you this morning. If you are struggling just a little bit with humility, in my opinion, this passage fixes that for us. And you, we just need to spend more time with God. And our humility factor will go way up. We will become much more humble. Let me read some of it to you since we're not doing discipleship. This is kind of the fun stuff I like to do in discipleship class. I'll read a lot, uh, maybe make a few comments to get you into the text. Job 38, beginning at verse 4. This is God speaking to Job. God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. That's another way of saying, tell me if you think you're so smart. Okay? You think you're so smart. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You studied the galaxies? You studied the planets? When I decided to put the earth right where it is, where were you at? And he goes on to describe that. It says, verse 5, Who set its measurements since, you know, since you're so smart? Or who stretched the line on it? Did, did you pull the tape measure? You know, on the earth, say, so, you know, we're going to make it this wide, this tall, this round, this over. Were you there helping me hold the string since you're so smart? Verse 6, on where, what were it bases sunk? What, what keeps it where it's at? Where did we put the foundation down? Or who laid its cornerstone? What's the most significant part of the earth that holds it all together? Verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Have you ever heard the stars sing? I didn't even know they sang. Boy, I bet it would be beautiful. Or have you ever heard the sons of God shout for joy? Sons of God are mysterious people. We read about them in the first chapters of Genesis where the sons of God marry the daughters of men and we just, uh, what, what does that mean? Who are these guys? And here the sons of God are shouting for joy when God creates the earth. It's like, whoa. And stars are singing. Where were you when all this happened? See, these are things we don't know. And he starts making this point over and over. Verse 8. Who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went from the womb. When I made a cloud, its garment. And thick darkness, its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it. And I set a bolt and doors. And I said, stop. Thus far you shall come no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. Where were you at when God created, begins to describe it even a little bit more here, the oceans, and said, I want to make great, big waves, but right there you stop. And he commands the wave to go no further. Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused dawn to know its place? I watched a beautiful orange dawn this morning out my window thinking of this verse God's never let me once be in charge of that have you ever once commanded the dawn to break across the sky you know so much I'll put you in charge of that tomorrow God says no don't put me in charge of that I'll mess it up that's the point verse 13 
that it may take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. How are the wicked shaken out of the dawn? To think through some of that. Verse 14, it is changed like clay under seal and they, they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you ever entered into the springs of the sea or walk in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Some of you have done scuba diving. You've gone down deep, perhaps. Deeper than the rest of us. Before your head explodes. And then they've created these other contraptions to take you even deeper. But God gives a description here. Go into the springs of the sea. Go all the way to the deepest recesses of the sea where the spring is that's keeping it filled. Have you done that? And obviously the answer is no. We have not. We don't know where that is. We don't know how to accomplish that. Oh, you're finally getting, you don't know very much, do you? You thought you knew it all. Verse 18, have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know. Come on. Why are you getting silent on me, Job? Where's the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where, where is that? Verse 20, that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the path of its home. It's kind of describing every the day and night cycle. God says, I put the darkness up. I bring the light out. How do I do that? If you know so much. Verse 21. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserved for times of distress, for the day of war and battle? How many people think about that in global warming discussions? God has storehouses of snow and storehouses of hell that he unleashes at what we consider random times because he wants to cause distress. He wants to cause all of this crazy discussion, maybe to get us to see we don't know what we're talking about. Verse 25, who, is a, who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? Do you know God creates the path of every thunderbolt, every flood? Who does that? Verse 26, to bring rain on the land without people, on a desert without man in it, to satisfy the waste and the desolate land, to make the seeds of grass to sprout. sprout. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice? And the frost of heaven, who has given its birth. Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Goes on and on to talk about great things. Well, I may run out of time. I encourage you to read all the way to, to Romans. I mean, excuse me, Romans. Chapter 40. Read all the way to Romans this afternoon. Start here. But go to chapter 40, verse 4. Behold, I am insignificant. That was Job's response. Verse 3, Job answered to the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I'm thinking, yeah. That's where I need to be. I mean, right now, we're, I see people post 
what they think to be the rules for the police officers and what they think to be the the rules for the disorderly. And I'm thinking, you've not been a police officer. You've not been a prisoner. How do you know so much? Where did you get this knowledge? And as I said last week, it grieves me that we're not going to the scriptures to get it. Because God is the one who has it. And we're not going to get there without humility. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. First, humility. The recognition that I do not know it all about anything. What I know to be absolute and true, I get from a God who has exhaustive knowledge. And if I don't study it accurately, I still won't have it right. Humility is always called for. And that's the beginning of our walk, to walk with humility. And you're going to gain it if you spend more time knowing God. Because God, just His presence, puts us in our place. He is the creator. We're the creature. We bow in humble adoration when we see His face. And we need to be there, obviously, much more. Second ingredient of Christian unity walk is the ingredient of gentle patience. So he says, verse uh, 2, with all humility and gentleness with patience. Now, gentleness or gentle patience is a function of hope. If you don't understand it as a function of hope, you won't get there. You see, if I hope that I will receive an inheritance, if I hope in Christ alone then I will receive that inheritance. If I hope in Christ giving me all I ever needed, I can, I can say, okay, I don't have to fight about this. I can be gentle. I can be patient. Because I'm going to inherit all I need. If I don't get it right now, that's okay. We, we fight for something because we want it now. We're in this... This world of insta-everything. And we feel like we've got to have everything right now. And we can't have gentleness because we don't have patience. It's got to be gentleness with patience. And you can be patient if you know it's going to be okay. I've seen how it works out. God's church, God's people are the ones who win. And we get it all in Christ. So knowing that is my hope. I can be patient when other people can't. They don't know that. That's why I say it's a function of hope. When you get the hope part well, God really has us, and He really is going to be faithful and give to us what He's promised. We can be patient with others, and when we can be patient with others, we can be gentle. We don't have to fight them right now. That's what He's asking us to do. It's rare, I know, in this pandemic world Uh, We see so many people eager, eager, eager to fight. No patience, no gentleness. God wants us to be gentle and patient. Uh, So many people we've seen this week are willing to risk the virus to fight and to protest. I'm saying how many of us are willing to risk the virus to be still? And know that our God is God. Will you risk it all to spend time with God? To know Him and the hope 
of your calling to produce humility, to produce a gentle patience. And then the third ingredient, I'll move, move on, is tolerance. This is a big one. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, it's confusing to a lot of people, but this tolerance does not mean that we're in, uh, embracing relativism. That it just doesn't matter what anybody does, I'm just going to be tolerant. No, 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 no. Evil is still evil. Good is still good. But it's asking us to show tolerance with love. How do we do that? How do we tolerate people that are not like us, that differ from us, disagree with us, ready to fight or shoot us? How do we show tolerance with love when we know some things are clearly evil? Uh, We need tolerance. That should be a discussion. How does a, a policeman who sees disorder and lawlessness right in front of his eyes... How does he show tolerance to the lawbreaker? See, I think zero tolerance is not a good motto. Even when someone is breaking the law, there needs to be a certain degree of tolerance to show them love and compassion. And how does a lawbreaker go back the other way who doesn't want the order and the law? How does he learn to show tolerance to those who want to uphold law and order. It needs to go both ways. Tolerance with love. Those need to be be part of our discussion. The Christian brings that to the world. The Christian steps into a world that we disagree with, that we're at odds with, we've been redeemed from. We're in the world, but we are not of it. So for us to be there and not of it, we have to show an extreme amount of tolerance to it. To be in it, yet still not of it. And that's, God says, this is the worthy walk I'm talking about. Humility, gentle patience, and tolerance with love. Hopefully we've been trying to do that here. We tell people, you don't have to agree. You don't have to be like us. You can wear the mask, not wear the mask. You can hug, not hug. You can shake, not shake. There's so many different things you can do, and we will tolerate that, whether we agree or disagree. It's tolerance with love. And we need to learn to live like that. that, that, I've told people, Christian people, people in this church, I'm not going to call you out like I did last week, okay? By name. But I've told people, listen, the way you're responding to me by email, by text, by phone, face to face, I've had to say, the way you're responding to me, I feel like right now you want to fight. I said, let me just say, I am not here to fight you. I am here to love you. We have got to come up to with a solution where we tolerate one another with love. We are not enemies. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we tolerate one another with love. And then we've got to go a step further and learn to do that with the non-believer as well. That's what it means to walk worthy of Christ. We show humility. We show a patience with gentleness. 
and we show this tolerance to others. Now, so that you get the fact that I'm not a relativist, and I don't think that it doesn't matter. In this context, in Ephesians 4, it's clear God is not wishy-washy. Look down at verse about truth. Look down at verse 13. He says, I want you all to attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. God wants us to grow in knowledge, in faith, in truth. He wants to embrace a a consistent, unified, biblical doctrine. He says, the people who just believe anything they want to, believe this today, believe that tomorrow, he says, I don't want you like that. You should be growing to embrace absolute truth. And yet I want you to tolerate others with love. Tolerating others with love does not require you to give up absolute truth. As a matter of fact, he gives a strong statement of absolute truth in this, uh, right after he mentions the word tolerance. Go back to uh, uh, verse 2. Showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve, catch this, unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And notice this declaration. There's one body. It's absolute terms. One, so one church. There's one Spirit as also you were just called, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. If there's two of any of those things, see, it blows the whole argument. There, there's one absolute truth. When it comes down to the church, there's only one. When it comes down to faith, there's only faith in Christ alone. There is no other name above or under heaven by which we can be saved, then Jesus Christ, Acts 4.12. There's only one Lord and Savior. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism being brought into Christ. There's only one calling. So this is absolute truth. You can embrace that. So there's one good, there's one evil in that sense. There is a definite evil and a definite good. You embrace it, but you still show tolerance in love, but you don't abandon absolute truth because if you do, you give people poison instead of the blessing of the gospel. So could I protest this afternoon alongside um, Joel Osteen, a Jew, and a Muslim? Yes. I show tolerance to them. But we're not going to the same place. None of them believe in the same God. They don't believe in the same absolute truth I just read to you. They don't believe there's only one way to heaven, and that's Christ alone. But I can show tolerance. You know, in other words, God is saying, you won't get to heaven by just doing the good works. Absolute truth is still absolute truth. And the world thinks they don't have such a thing, that it's relative truth. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, it's all good. No, it's not all good. There's only one way. There's only one true God. For me to believe in relativism, I'm giving you poison instead of a blessing. I will tolerate you. I will love you. But I will still point you to absolute truth. 
I will still point you to Christ in a loving, gentle, patient, humble way. Not because I know it all, but because I've read what the one who does know it all tells me to tell you. And that's life, and it's blessing, and it's healing. That's walking. God says, well done. Are you walking worthy of the gospel, of the hope, of the calling that you have been given? You know, when somebody exalts himself, says, well, well, I know. I know. When somebody exalts himself to be God, then they become the standard. Their race, their gender, their knowledge, and that inevitably creates discord, disunity. We want to fight because we're not like them. But when you step into the world and you're humble, said, I don't know it all. I can tell you what I've read. I can tell you what God has shown to me. I can treat you with gentleness and patience. I can wait for you to catch up if you're not there. I can wait for me to catch up if you think I need. And even if you want to disagree on and on and on, if you want to go a different direction, I can let that happen. And I can continue to love you. And my goal is to love you back to absolute truth, to something that's inerrant, it's infallible, it never changes. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever because it flows out of that God who is without changing. The same yesterday, today, and forever. I hope you see a worthy walk. I hope you see that that's how we go into public. And if the public began to see us as humble, gentle, patient, tolerant, and love, that they would be revived by seeing Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that gives us so much to evaluate and think about. Thank you for the power to repent, to turn from sin, the power to believe your truth, to embrace you as a prisoner of the Lord, to be one of your own. Lord, let the world see these little Christs, these Christians, all throughout. And may the light of the world draw them to a righteousness and to a peace that passes understanding. Lord, help us and use us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.